Thank you, Jesse. In the newspaper yesterday, there were two contrasting stories in the metro section. The first one headlines, Police Seeking Teens Killers, 17-year-old shot in chest after argument in parking lot of Southeast Columbia Church. The story goes on to talk about gang violence and so forth. Immediately next to it, there is a story of Jamal Bradley. I used to enjoy watching Jamal play basketball at the University of South Carolina. But in that story, he has been recruited by Leon Lott, the sheriff, who is a member of our church. And now he is a school resource officer, and the story that is recorded there tells about the satisfaction that he has found in life and how he feels that he is able to make a difference, especially in the lives of young people. Well, I found that story interesting, that contrast interesting, because we continue today our study from 1 Peter. And Peter says in our text today that there are two choices for us concerning the way we live the rest of our lives. We can live our life in the flesh or we can live our life in the spirit. To live in the flesh is a way of saying that we live a life of disobedience to God. It is, it is a life of selfishness and sinfulness. I think it can be represented best by the story of the prodigal son who lived a life of selfishness. He was only concerned about himself and what he wanted, not concerned about his father or anyone else. But then the Bible says that he came to his senses and said, I will arise and go to my father and say to him, I have sinned. So that is a life of selfishness and sinfulness. Or, Peter says, that we can live a life in the Spirit. So we are going to look at this passage today, picking up where we left off last week. First Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And in all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. But they shall give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
Four times in our text, Peter uses the phrase, in the flesh, and so I want to use that phrase for our outline today. First of all, he says that we suffer in the flesh, in verse number one. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, we know that Jesus suffered while he was here. He suffered the abuse of man verbally. When Jesus was arrested, the Bible says that the soldiers took him, they blindfolded him, they slapped him, they plucked his beard, and then they cried out, You claim to be a prophet, then why don't you prophesy which one of us hit you? When he was taken to the cross, one of the thieves who was dying alongside him joined also in mocking Jesus. He said, If you are the Savior... Save yourself and us. You claim to be the Savior. Well, if you are a Savior, why don't you save yourself and save us while you're doing it? So Jesus was abused verbally. He was abused physically. The cross was an instrument of pain and suffering and sorrow, and he died on the cross. He was abused by man, and he was separated from God. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? For the first time, the sins of man were placed on Jesus, and Jesus was separated from the Father. And the most pain he suffered, I believe, was the pain of separation. But the point Peter is making here is that Christ suffered and so we suffer as well, again in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, what does that mean? He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What does that mean? Well, there are different ideas as the possible meaning of that. There are those who would say that, well, when we suffer, we cease from sin in a sense because suffering purifies us. As we are suffering, we are being purified from our sin. Now, that was a Jewish thought. And we read that in Psalm 94, 12, Blessed is the man whom thou dost chasten, O Lord. And so the thought of the psalmist then is that we are blessed when we suffer. Why? because it purifies us from our sin. Job had the same thought when he said in Job 5.17, Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. So, suffering then is seen by some as being positive because it purifies us from sin. Problem. That is not always the case. Some people suffer and they are not purified from sin. You know the story of Pharaoh, how Pharaoh suffered under the plagues that God had sent when he would not allow the Hebrew people to leave. But his suffering did not purify him from sin. The Bible says in Exodus 9, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not let the sons of Israel go. So suffering then did not purify his heart, it hardened his heart. I was thinking of the contemporary Billy Graham, I can't think of his name right now. But he was an evangelist as well. 
And he saw a picture, he saw the results of suffering and poverty and so forth, and it did not, when he saw that, it did not purify his heart. In fact, it turned his heart from God. And he became an atheist, and as far as I know to this day, remains an atheist. So there are some who say that suffering purifies us from sin, but that is not always so. There are others who would say that suffering strengthens us, that when we go through a period of suffering, then our faith is strengthened. We become stronger than we were. William Barclay wrote, the idea is that a man has come through persecution and not denied the name of Christ. He comes out on the other side with a character so tested and a faith so strengthened that temptation cannot touch him anymore. So there are those who would say that suffering strengthens us. Problem is, that is not always so. You probably know people, as I know people, who have gone through periods of suffering, and their suffering did not strengthen them. In fact, their faith was weakened. So then what does this mean? Probably it is a reference back. You'll notice there in verse number one, he says, therefore, which refers back to what he had been talking about. And earlier he had been speaking about baptism. And I think probably that is the connection here. That when he was saying this, whenever he made this statement, that he is saying that suffering like baptism identifies us with Christ. As, as we are baptized and as we suffer, then we identify with his death. Romans chapter 6 verse number 4 says, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death. You see... When someone is baptized and they go under the water, that is a picture of death, that that person has died and is buried. So it could be then that he is talking about identification and that when we are baptized, when we suffer, we are identifying with Christ, we identify with his death, and we identify in baptism with his resurrection because he continues in Romans 6, 4, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. When the person comes up out of the water, then that is a picture of their identification with the resurrected Christ. So it could be here that he is saying that we identify, he is referring us back to baptism. We identify with Christ through baptism and through suffering. He mentions suffer in the flesh. Jesus did, so do we. Then he talks about lust in the flesh in verse number two. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Now, Peter is saying that as a believer, if we have committed our life to Christ, we no longer live in the flesh. And then he describes what it is to live in the flesh in verse number 3. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. The word sensuality, Vine defines it as excess, absence of restraint. Shameless conduct. This is the way that we lived before. He is talking here about someone who has no shame for their sin. Which sounds to me like a description for our own day. Now I know that I'm older than some of you. And it absolutely astounds me today. That people sin. And as a result of their sin, they are featured on magazine covers. 
They have television programs. All of those things as a result of their sin, which is precisely what this word means. It speaks of someone who sins, and yet there is no shame for sin. We have no shame for sin today. All we want to do is to avoid the consequences of our sin. And then he mentions lust. The word lust that is used in the Bible has neither a good or bad connotation. It simply means a strong desire. It can be a strong desire for that that is good. It can be a strong desire for that that is bad. Just a strong desire. Within the context in which it is given, though, it is speaking of a strong desire for unlawful lust. Drunkenness. Barnes wrote, Multitudes of those who became Christians had been drunkards, for intemperance abounded in all the heathen world. Carousals. Barnes says it means feasting, to revel, a carousing or merrymaking. After supper, the guests often sallying into the streets and going through the city with torches, music, and songs in honor of Bacchus. And folks, what Peter is saying is that that is not appropriate for a believer. That kind of conduct is not appropriate. It is not expected of someone who says that they are a Christian and then drinking parties, which could be a description of modern-day spring break that oftentimes turns into a, a week of a drinking party, abominable idolatries. He is saying that this is the life that we had before we came to Jesus Christ. This is the life that they were living before they came to Jesus Christ. Now, if you look again in verse number 2, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, that he describes there in verse number 3, but for the will of God. Ladies and gentlemen, as believers, we do not live our lives for the lust of the flesh, but for the will of God. Well, how can I know the will of God? Well, first of all, I have to have a willing heart. I really want to know God's will. Do you really want to know God's will? Now, don't commit yourself on that, because I know that, that we know far more about God's will than we are living, don't we? We have to have a heart that wants to know God's will. Do you really want to know God's will? And then committed to a pure heart so that we might know His will. The Bible says in Romans 12, 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. As he describes the will of God, he says it's good. It's acceptable. And it's perfect. You see, we are to know His will that we might do His will. It is not that we know His will that we might pass judgment on His will. We are to know His will that we might do His will. And if you do His will, you will find it enjoyable. God's will, and I'm, I'm just like you, I am a believer. I do want to know God's will for my life. What does God want from me? So I'm no different. This is what I found about God's will, is that immediately it is usually difficult. When you know God's will and you enter into His will, it is immediately difficult. 
And you will find that throughout Scripture. Jeremiah yielded to the will of God, and then he ended up suffering as a result of it. The Apostle Paul yielded to the will of God, and he ended up suffering as a result of it. And that has been true in my life, and I'm sure it is in yours as well. The will of God is immediately difficult because it is going to be put to the test. It is ultimately pleasant. Whenever you commit yourself to doing God's will, you will find that there are challenges immediately. It is immediately difficult. It is ultimately pleasant. You'll be glad. And it is eventually successful. If you commit yourself to the Lord's will, don't think that it is going to come without struggle. But you will find that there is a pleasure in your life from doing God's will And in time, God's will will be worked out. So he says that we no longer live for the lust of the flesh. We live for the will of God. Thirdly, he said we are judged in the flesh in verse number 6. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Now, this, I believe, is what Simon Peter is saying. Since we face God's judgment, then how can I live in the Spirit? Now, you'll notice that he mentions those who are dead. The gospel has been preached to those who are dead. Who are they? Those who are dead. Well, it could be those who are dead in sin, because the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, folks, That was our spiritual condition before we came to know Jesus Christ. We were spiritually dead. We weren't feeling bad. We were dead. We were spiritually dead. So it could be that he is speaking of a spiritual death, not a physical death. There are other people who believe that it's a reference to those who died before the second coming of Christ. William Barclay wrote, it has been taken to mean those who died before the second coming of Christ, but who heard the gospel before they died, and so will not miss the glory. So, those people who heard the gospel, trusted Christ, and Jesus has not yet come to rapture us, and they will not miss the glory. Some believe that it refers to them. Some would say that it refers to all of us, because in a sense we all die as a result of sin. Then he gives us the motivation in verse number 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. You know, the return of Jesus Christ is a tremendous motivation for the believer, if you really believe that. It is one thing to study it, It is one thing to speculate about it, but ladies and gentlemen, if you really believe that Jesus Christ is coming again, it will affect your life. If you really believe this might be the day when Christ returns, it will change your life. He mentions sound judgment there as a result. The word literally means to preserve one's sanity. One commentator wrote, The great characteristic of sanity is that it sees things in their proper proportions. It sees what things are important and what are not. My friend, if you really believe in the return of Jesus Christ that he could come at any time, then those things that are truly important in life 
will have priority in your life. If you really believe that Jesus is coming again, your priorities will be different. He mentioned sober spirit. We take the things seriously that are important if we believe that Christ is coming again. Now, let me ask you. Don't you think that if the people of God really believe that Christ is coming again, that it could be in our lifetime, that the things of God will be more important to you to teach your children even more important than ball and ballet. Don't you? If you really believe that Jesus Christ is coming again, then the things of God takes prominence in your life. Those serious things of God will change your life. And then he says for prayer. If we understand what is important, then we will pray. I had someone uh, to stop me just early this morning and say, oh, Tuesday, we had, we had eight people gather here and pray. We have people almost, I, I think, Jerry, almost every day of the week who are just coming and praying. We have people during the service who are just praying, praying. Why? Because they are finding importance and priority in the things of God. And the things of God have become more important, I believe, to our church than they have previously. He said that, that if we believe in the return of Jesus Christ, really believe in it, he said we will love one another in verse number 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. The word fervent that is used means to stretch or to strain. It is a picture of an athlete who is straining towards the, the goal, who is, who is reaching towards the goal. I, I, I watched the Olympics as I'm sure you did. But I was watching Michael Phelps when I think he was trying for his seventh gold medal. I was yelling and cheering him on as he was swimming because I wanted him to win that. And then he comes to the end of it. And if you saw that, the other guy who came in second was just about to touch the goal when Michael Phelps' arms were back here. And my heart sunk because I thought, there is no way he is going to get there first. I still don't know how he did that. But he beat the opponent by one one-hundredth of a second. One one-hundredth of a second. Why? Because he was straining forward. That's what it says about love for the believer. We are to strain forward in our love for each other like an athlete does. And then he says that love covers. The word covers that is used there does not mean forgiveness. Literally, it means does not stir up or broadcast sins. Proverbs 10:12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. We don't broadcast sins. I, I've, I found it a little amusing. When I'm not aggravated, other things are amusing to me. But I have been watching, um, and uh, of course the media has been infatuated with um, Governor Palin's story. And then they came out and talked about her 17-year-old daughter who is pregnant and not married. And I didn't know how to respond to it, so I was just amused by it when I heard some of the commentators talking. Don't you think that this is going to turn the evangelicals off. 
And I thought, my heavens, these people don't have a clue who we are. There is no one who is more forgiving than evangelicals, than believers, than Christians. There's no one who is more willing to reach out and to forgive than the people of God, the real people of God. No one. Why? Because, ladies and gentlemen, I need the grace of God myself. It's not just how in heaven's name can I beat up someone for needing the grace of God when I stand in need of His grace. We all need the grace of God, so love covers. And then he says in verse number 9, be hospitable. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. That's what we are to do. If we're to live in the Spirit, be hospitable. Thursday night, we who had gone to Greece together uh, went over to Naomi Perriman's house, and she just she's just wonderful. You know, she fed us and took care of us and all of that. And, and so I asked her, I said, is there anything we can do? She said, uh, uh, no. She said, hospitality is my gift. She said, now, your gift is preaching, my gift is hospitality. And I thought, isn't that wonderful? And I'm glad my gift is preaching, not hospitality, but... The Bible says that we are to be hospitable towards each other. Why? Because it's commanded of the Lord. And then secondly, because hospitality builds community. You see, there is a difference between hospitality and entertaining. Mike Wilkins said entertaining people is showing off your house. Hospitality is opening your house to them. Entertaining centers on self and begs compliments. Hospitality centers on others and on God. If we are to live in the Spirit, then we are to be hospitable to other believers. And then he says, we're stewards of grace in verse number 10. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We are stewards of grace. Now look what he says in verse number 11. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. In other words, those who have received grace are to speak of grace. He goes on in verse number 11. Whoever serves, let him do it as by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Christ Jesus, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Those who have received grace are to serve others. So if you have received grace, he says, then you are to speak grace. If you have received grace... Then you are to serve others. Well, let me conclude. How will you live, Peter asked, the rest of time? In the flesh? Then this is your choice. In the flesh? Sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. That's to live in the flesh. Or in the spirit. Fervent in love. Hospitable. Stewards of Grace. I began by mentioning mentioning Jamal Bradley. He said, we were not brought into this world to be complacent. We were brought here to do great things. Folks, that's what it is, Peter says, as the people of God. We are not to live in the flesh. We are to live in the Spirit. We are not here for ourselves. We are not here for complacency and comfort. We are here to do great things 
that will bring honor and glory to the name of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. Our gracious Father in God, we thank you so much for your grace. May we speak of it. May we praise you for it. And may we share it with others. Lord, I pray for each believer that they will live in the Spirit to glorify you in whose name I pray. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing a hymn of invitation. If you have never come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, let me encourage you today to trust Him. If you are a believer and you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. We'd love to have you as a part of our family. It's a wonderful family. We'd love to welcome you. Whatever God's speaking to your heart about. You be obedient to Him today. The staff is going to be here to receive you. Stand with me, please, as the choir sings. You come, I'll greet you as you do.